The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. I thought this is the last class before spring break. We do something slightly different today, and that's work through um, one of the articles in Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. It's being recorded for tape, isn't it, for media people? So anybody out there listening on tape isn't in the class, you'll need to get hold of uh, Summa Theologiae first part, question 23 of predestination. And the translation I happen to be using is the literal translation of the Dominican Fathers produced early in the 20th century. Everybody got a copy of the, the sheet? Put some keep the spare sort of near the door or something so if there are any stragglers coming in late they can grab hold of them. A couple of reasons why I wanted to, to focus on the issue of predestination today, and one of them is to, to point to the continuities that exist between the early church, the Middle Ages, and the Reformation. We often think, I, I referred to this in the very first class, we often tend to think uh, as Protestants in terms of great discontinuities in the development of the church's thinking over time. Um, we tend to think that Maybe theology was quite good in the early church, though often we don't know very much about it, but we assume it was generally okay. Uh, and then it all goes kind of horribly wrong sometime in the 6th century. And you have the Dark Ages, followed by the Middle Ages, and somehow, out of the blue, God raises up Martin Luther and company, and these guys who explode onto the scene from nowhere. Uh, they suddenly read their Bible in a completely new way. It's not connected with the way they've passed thousand years. And you have the Reformation, the recovery of true <coughs> Christian doctrine. Um, that's a popular Protestant way of reading church. What I want to bring out today is the fact that there are many continuities throughout <coughs> church history. That it's not a case that theology is rediscovered or reinvented in the 16th century. But there are elements of theology important elements of reflection upon the Bible's teaching that we can trace pretty continuously throughout the Reformation, back through the Middle Ages to the Patristic Era. A couple of examples of this would be, one would be reflection on the doctrine of the Trinity. Christianity in the Middle Ages, as in the Reformation, is a creedal religion. It takes the official declaration of the Church very seriously indeed. And therefore, kind of topics that are covered in the early church creeds remain perennially important and perennially important theologians in the Middle Ages, Trinity being one obvious example. It would be quite easy to construct uh, a narrative of the development of Western theology that points to it as an ongoing reflection on the nature of the Trinity. If you did that, then much of the discontinuity that we often see between patristic era and medieval period, reformation period, would disappear. Little problem with much of the reflection upon the Trinity that's gone on in the Middle Ages, and the medieval self-consciously stand uh, in line with the patristic era. So you could take the doctrine of the Trinity and see 
not exactly a seamless development, but a continuous development, if you like, over 1,500 years. Another issue would be predestination. We'll come to that in more detail when we come to Aquinas in a few minutes. But the characterization by Luther, that Luther gives of the Middle Ages, that the Middle Ages was all semi-Pelagian thinking. It was all, it, it took an attenuated view of man's sin, divine sovereignty, an exaggerated view of human freedom. This is the sort of picture that Luther's. That is certainly true of certain elements in the Middle Ages. The same way that it would be true, no doubt, if you looked at Protestantism today. That if you painted a picture of Protestantism based upon Robert Schuller and the Christian Cathedral, you would have a picture of Protestantism that goes on. You would make a fundamental error, however, if you generalised from that to say that all Protestantism is Luther does is assumes that the teaching that he, he talks about, all the doctors taught me this, and it's all the biographical fragment, all the doctors have told me that righteousness meant this. Medieval doctors, not all the medieval doctors, but what he's actually saying is all of the doctors with whom there is a stream within the Middle Age, an influential stream, that is anti-Pelagian, that takes a high view of God's predestination, <coughs> a high view, or might say a very low view, if you like, of man's strong emphasis God's sovereignty and sovereign action of grace. So I pulled up today Aquinas on predestination because I think if we look at Aquinas on predestination, you substantial continuity. What Augustine says, what Aquinas says, and what Calvin are later to say. Any questions on that? Why is predestination significant in the Middle Ages? A number of reasons. Go back to Augustine. What is the matrix out of which Augustine's understanding of predestination comes? I think it is more than anything else in Augustine tied up with his understanding of sin and baptism. One of his great problems with Pelagius is if Pelagius has the view of original sin that he does have to baptise infants. And his problem with Pelagianism is, one of, well, one of the problems is, if you have Pelagius's view of your understanding of sin, there's no need for infant baptism. Why baptise these infants if they're not born in sin? So the first reason that uh, predestination is important and why it continues to be important in the Middle Ages, the nature of baptism, important point to grasp. We often tend to think, we often don't connect predestination with baptism in our own minds. <coughs> was intimately connected with baptism in Augustine's mind. And it's the same with Martin Luther. Martin Luther's Reformation breakthrough to justification by comes at the end of a decade of him reflecting upon the nature of sin and coincides with shifts he makes in his understanding of baptism. Martin Luther decides that baptism is not about washing. He taught baptism is about dying and rising again. Sin is so severe. It's not a case of being washed from it. It's a question of dying to it and rising again. So again, in Martin Luther, if you like, the, the fountainhead of Protestant thinking about justification by faith, sin and baptism stand at the same in a way that they probably don't for many of us. So that's the first point then, sin and baptism, and this ties in very much with the doctrine of the church, of course. One point, just as an aside, but one point that's important to make is there is a basic discontinuity as well between Reformation and medieval understandings and Augustinian, and, and that has to do with assurance. For Luther, predestination is one of the things of salvation. The medieval sacramental system, the medieval moral system, depended upon you not being 100% sure, and that goes both for the orthodox and for heretics. Such difference, a, a fundamental difference in function in predestination for Luther that I'll flag up at this point. 
Second issue, why it's of importance, the relationship of time and eternity. Boethius is the man. And I can't remember, did I do my class on Boethius in the medieval course or in the patristic? <coughs> if you do the patristics, right. I was going to say, you could do him in either. He's kind of the first of the medievals, last of the fathers in many ways. Boethius writes this work, The Consolation of Philosophy. He writes it at a time when he's in prison for a crime that he claims he didn't commit. He probably didn't, but then most people in prison claim they're there for a crime. Consolation of Philosophy is a long and extended reflection by him in prison on the age-old question of why do bad things happen to good people? Why is Boethius, as an innocent man, um, caught up in this nightmare that will culminate ultimately in his execution? And while he's languishing in his prison cell, the lady philosophy comes to the and dialogues with him to comfort him. It's always been a, a source of some discomfort to Christians that it's the lady philosophy who comes through the window and not some more obviously Christian religious figure that comes through to console him, leading to questions about did he really, is it the same Boethius who wrote this, who wrote the theological tracts? Did this proper? That question needn't concern us here. The point about the consolation of philosophy is, first of all, it's the most widely read book in the Middle Ages. Everybody who's anybody <coughs> reads this book. Secondly, it raises the issue of human free will versus God's sovereignty. If God knows everything and he knows the future, he's saying that human beings are because that God stands outside of time. His knowledge is connected to in a non-causal <coughs> sort of way. It's a little bit like a man, as he said, standing at the top of the tower and looking at a long queue. You can see the whole queue simultaneously. That's how God looks at different points in time. He's like standing on a tower well above time itself, and he looks down and he sees all of time simultaneously. It raises, of course, precisely the kind of questions that are going to puzzle the relationship between time and... Not all medieval theologians will go for Boethius's... Another of Boethius's models kind of drawn from Platon is <coughs> Eternity, God and time is like... He's like the singularity at the centre of a circle, you know, the middle of a black hole. It's meant to be a point which occupies no space whatsoever, weighs an infinite amount. Don't understand it, just believe it. And it's kind of connected to all of the outer points like this. This is how Boethius models the relationship of God and eternity and time. God is at the centre. He's not part of the, the wheel of time, if you like, <coughs> but he's positively connected towards every point on that wheel. Some... Uh, Medievals will say, no, no, this isn't the right model. God is like a stick placed in a stream that flows past. I'm a bit sceptical. I mean, there's, there's an old story a Jewish pal of mine told me about an old rabbi who's dying, and all the other rabbis gather around because the rabbi's last words are meant to be very wise. And they say to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, give us a word of wisdom. And the old rabbi opens his eyes and says, life is like a fountain. And the rabbis all sort of consult with each other, and they don't understand this. And they say, Rabbi, Rabbi, we don't know what you mean. Okay, life is not like a fountain. <laughs> and I think sometimes these models are sort of fall into that kind of category where you know exactly what do they mean it's not immediately obvious uh, what the difference between a point at the centre of a circle and a stick standing in a stream you know, what is the difference between the two of them but anyway fortunately we're just historians in this class we don't have to worry about whether this is true or not we simply have to accept the fact that this is the kind of model that was put forward by these guys but it raises in an acute form all of the questions that will pan out on predestination. What is the relationship between God in eternity and your act of faith? Your taking the sacrament, your baptism, your death, your passage through the sacramental system of the church. 
So a kind of a general metaphysical question about the relationship of time and eternity has profound impact upon the way you understand your relationship to the church. It also, of course, throws up all kinds of questions about what does it mean to say that something is necessary? What does it mean to say that something is free? One of the great contributions of the medievals, they analyze the language of freedom and necessity <coughs> extremely carefully. And they lay out the fact there are different kinds of necessities that are ontological necessities, i.e. God. There are necessities that are necessary given a certain other set of circumstances holding. If you are born to human parents, it is necessary. So the Middle Ages gets itself very involved in very, very careful examination of the language of necessity and freedom, but also spends a lot of time reflecting upon the nature of these kind of questions and acute form. So you have the Augustinian uh, heritage, you have the Boethian heritage, and you also have extensive reflection upon the purpose of creation and the purpose of humanity. Why are human beings created? We saw this a little bit when we looked at um, John Scott as Eregina a few weeks ago there about going out from God and coming back to God. The purpose of creation and humanity. The medievals are almost to a man, teleological thinkers. That is, they think many times, logically, in terms of the last thing first. Aquinas is a teleological thinker. His theology is shaped, if you like, by eschatology at the end of the day. And predestination, providence, these things factor into that. If you think about it in terms of, if you get out from here to drive to Pittsburgh, what do you do? You take the road to Pittsburgh. The direction you travel in is determined by the last point on your journey. And at the very start of your journey, you fix your mind upon that last point. And every decision you make about what road to take and which direction to go is determined by the last point. That's how Aquinas will organize and frame his theological thinking. When he thinks about predestination, he's thinking about a consummation at the end of time. Christian life is shaped by its end term. And we'll see that in this discussion that I want to look at today. So the purpose of creation and humanity, the end term, the end purpose in the Middle Ages, I want to explore that in some detail. So these are the kind of issues that lie behind the thinking. You characterize them all as semi-Pelagian or Malaysian is <coughs> simply inaccurate, as we shall see. One of the things, however, that is most Noteworthy, I think, of the Middle Ages is that it is not the creedal boundaries within which these guys are allowed to reflect are somewhat broader than they should have been. Mainly because uh, August Augustine's ideas are, in a modified form, taken up and made uh, official church position at the Second Council of Orange, 529, which effectively establishes the church's position as a anti-Pelagian. Not perhaps not as vigorously anti-Pelagian as Augustine, but basically makes semi-Pelagianism heretical. What is interesting, however, is that the decrees of the Second Council of Orange disappear throughout the whole Middle Ages. So your thinkers within the church who have a very high view of the church and therefore wish to frame their thinking in terms <coughs> of the church's creedal position have considerably more issues, one might say, than they might otherwise. So you get guys in the late Middle Ages advocating a semi-Pelagian position, not realizing 
that that position has a, a final point of interest. Um, that the definition of semi-Pelagianism, if you like, as a bad thing, is lost in the Middle Ages and therefore doesn't feature as part of the reflection on this issue in the way that, say, the Nicene, Church of God, nature of the Trinity. Any questions on that so far? Don't think we know. It's just never referred to. Don't, I don't think we know. I might be wrong on that. But as far as I know, we don't know. <coughs> just one of the great dreams, tragedies of the church, depending. Another question? Same question. Same question. It's a good question. I think the answer is we just don't know. Right. Let's look at this uh, Aquinas. I don't want to spend the rest of the class really today working through this. Because I want to, it culminates very nicely. If you just flick straight through to the end, and we'll... Um, page, this is page 336. We'll come to this later on after we've worked through the whole thing. But just to, to bring out the fact that what Aquinas is doing... In line with what I tried to show you in his prayers last week, and I was trying to make the point that this isn't just abstract stuff, the very last question in this section, the eighth article, is whether predestination can be furthered by the prayers of the saints. I'm sure if you go into the average Christian bookshop today, you will find books that address precisely that question. If God is sovereign, why bother praying? Very, very practical question. So... Not only this, it's a sort of um, collateral benefit of looking at predestination requirements. First of all, one can establish points of continuity with the past and the future in the history of theology. But also, one can quietly put to death the idea that these guys are simply divorced from the day-to-day -day life of the church and the day-to-day -day sort of questions that students, Christians ask. Aquinas addresses the question because he's clearly come across it before in class and he realises it's one that needs to be addressed. If God is sovereign, if everything that I've said is true, why bother praying? And he gives uh, an attempt to give an, an account of why one should still pray even though God has predestined uh, uh, men, women, children for salvation. So then, turn to the first page, 318. Uh, you see here at the top, this is a classic sort of... Uh, piece of scholastic work, lays out at the top the kind of uh, questions that he's going to look at. If you look at the, uh, the very first paragraph, 23, um, there are eight points of inquiry. Whether predestination is suitably attributed to God, what is predestination, and whether it places anything in the predestined, whether to God belongs the reprobation of some men, on the comparison of predestination to election, whether that is to say the predestined are chosen, whether merits are the cause or reason of predestination or reprobation or election, of the certainty of predestination, whether the predestined will infallibly be saved, whether the number of predestined is certain, whether predestination can be furthered by prayers of the saints. All the perennial questions are there that come up time and time again in the history of this doctrine. Starts off, of course, with the classic scholastic question, got to ask whether it exists or not. No point in discussing something if it doesn't exist. So, whether predestination is suitably attributed to God, if it isn't suitably attributed to God, there's no point in discussing it. That will be the end of the discussion. So, the fact that we see that the eight points, you know, it goes on from one point to make eight points, indicates to us he's going to give an affirmative answer. Yes, it is right that this thing is attributed to God. But notice as well the other thing, the old question of merits. Um, whether merits are the cause or reason of predestination or reprobation or election. Precisely the kind of question that Calvinists and Arminians, Molinists and Jansenists will be asking in the 16th, 17th century. It's being asked here in the Middle Ages. 
As I said before, these guys aren't fools. Neither are they divorced from the everyday life of the church. Precisely the same questions that come up in the 16th, 17th century are coming up for these guys now. Whether the number of the predestined is certain, classic example of connecting with a question raised by Augustine, immediately indicating the context, the kind of context within which uh, Aquinas is operating, and whether predestination can be furthered by the prayers of the saints. The first article, then. We proceed thus to the first article. Uh, you will notice, first of all, four objections. One, two, three, and four. Each of these objections offers an argument of varying degree of sophistication or varying dependence upon uh, a text of scripture from an authority. It is followed by an on the contrary. You see the on the contrary there? Middle of page 319. There you have the classic said contra. A single line drawn from an authority. In other words, you have reasoned arguments followed by a knockdown proof text argument followed by the resolution of the magister. And let's just look at one or two of these questions here. Um, uh, objection two, for example. Further, all creatures are directed to their end by divine providence, as was said above, but other creatures are not said to be predestined by God. Therefore, neither are men. Providence for Aquinas, directing A to A's end. Directing A to A's end. Providence for Aquinas is not simply a blind watchmaker situation. The world's been you know, wound up thousands of years ago and left a tick on by itself. Providence is God's loving and caring guidance of his creature, his creation, to its proper end. If you're a termite, God's providence for you is that he will guide you to doing termite-like things. In the wood in some innocent guy's house, for example. That's an example, of course, it has raises questions of evil. Aquinas is very clever on evil. There are different kinds of evil. Yes, if you own a house <coughs> and a termite eats it, that is an evil as far as you are concerned. But Aquinas would say that's a natural evil, if you like, because you don't like it. But in fact, from the termite's perspective, it's extremely good because he has realized his termite potential. Termites <laughs> <laughs> do. That's why it's not an evil for Aquinas so much when. You know, a lion eats Bambi. The tragic for Bambi and his family is great for the lion because it allows him to be more of a lion and to go on. So that is what they call a natural evil for Aquinas. And natural evils are, are, are include, included in Providence because they involve directing his end. And the point he's simply making here is um, human beings... They're creatures. They fall into the wider category of creature. Why isn't it adequate simply to say that, uh, you know, why do we need a special category of predestination? Why do we need to talk about human beings being predestined? Why don't we just talk about them being providentially guided to their appropriate end? Now if you flick forward to uh, reply to objection two, irrational creatures, he says, are not capable of that end which exceeds the faculty of human nature. Whence they cannot be properly said to be predestined, although improperly the term is used in respect of any other end. So he's saying there is a sense in which you could say the termite is predestined to eat a house. That, that kind of works. But you'd be using a word, you know, sloppy use of language to do that. But the interesting thing here is he say, he's saying that these other creatures are not capable of achieving an end that transcends natural human capacity. 
what he's saying is what underlies, the theology that underlies this is that eternal life was supernatural in the strict sense of the word. That's the phrase he uses, exceeds the faculty of, uh, not capable of that faculty which, uh, of, of that end which exceeds the faculty of human nature. Human beings have a transcendent, a desire to achieve a transcendent that goes beyond their natural capacities. There is a natural end for human beings. One can define the natural end in a lot of ways. Killing um, the soil, human race, <coughs> marrying, worshipping God within the framework of history. All of these things are natural ends. But there is another end for which human beings have been determined, which exceeds natural capacity. And that is eternal life. And eternal life is not something that human beings can immediately see. I know that things play out from this. One can immediately see here that you really have a pretty strong anti-Pelagian understanding of salvation. You cannot achieve salvation on your own efforts. It's quite clear. Eternal life is beyond your natural faculties. You are capable of it <coughs> in the sense that you have the potential of being made. So underlying this sentence then is the idea that eternal life is something supernatural. And this is why predestination will come in. Predestination, Aquinas is strongly implying here, is a special exaltation of eternal life. Providence has connotations of operating within the natural framework. Predestination carries you beyond what nature is capable of to eternal life. Any comments on that? The third objection, interesting one. The angels are capable of beatitude as, are, as well as men. But predestination is not suitable to angels, since in them there has never been any unhappiness. For predestination, as Augustine says, is the purpose to take pity. Therefore, men are not predestined. So, angels are capable of beatitude in the same way as men are. But we don't talk about them as predestined, so why should we talk about human beings as predestined? Look at the reply to objection three. Predestination applies to angels just as it does to men, although they have never been unhappy. For movement does not take its species from the term where from, but from the term where to. This is the teleological thinking. Predestination is not so much about back in time pushing you forward as about God being in front of time pulling you towards him. Motion, he's saying, takes its name from where you're going to. If you're going to Pittsburgh and you're driving towards Pittsburgh, you don't say, driving in the direction of Philadelphia. You don't say, I'm driving from Philadelphia. That doesn't give you any information. Could be going to New York, could be going to Washington, could be going to San Francisco. Doesn't really give you any use whatsoever. Predestination, says Aquinas, is all to do with where you're going, not where you come from. Because it matters nothing in respect to the notion of making white, whether he who is made white was before black, yellow, or red. Likewise, it matters nothing in respect to the notion of predestination, whether one is predestined to life eternal from the state of misery or not. Although it may be said that every conferring of good above that which is due pertains to mercy, as was shown previously. So, you're on the road, predestination, think about where you're going to, don't think about where you're coming. The fact that the predestined misery, doesn't. the point is, they've been carried by the divine will of God. 
Now, the last, the last objection four. This may very important point is made in the reply here. Further, the benefits God confers upon men are revealed by the Holy Ghost to holy men according to the saying of the Apostle. Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit that is of God, that we may know the things that are given us from God. Therefore, if man were predestined by God, since predestination is a benefit from God, his predestination would be made known to each predestined, which is clearly false. Working there very much against the background of the medieval church, as I've said, where assurance is just not an issue. It is self-evident that Christians don't have assurance and shouldn't expect it. What Aquinas is saying there, the, the objection is that predestination is a benefit from God. The Bible says we can know the benefits of God. Therefore, we can know that we're predestined. Therefore, we can be assured of our salvation. Therefore, our salvation, down the line a little bit, becomes somewhat independent from the visible church system. Be told by, directly by God that we have real problems. Christians start knowing they're saved for themselves in terms of maintaining the sacramental authority of the church. The reply to the objection, even if by a special privilege their predestination were revealed to some, it is not fitting that it should be revealed to everyone, because if so, those who were not predestined would despair and security would beget negligence in the predestined. Very interesting pastoral comment there. Um, first of all, he's clearly allowing for I think the revelation of predestination to some. The medievals did allow that certain people, there are a couple of caveats generally put into that though. First of all, these people were very, very rare. When John Bradford says in the English Reformation, the thing that separate, really separates me from Rome is the fact that I believe that assurance of salvation should be the common possession of every belief. He's making a point upon which the Catholics would Assurance is one of the big issues that divides Protestants from Catholics in the 16th century. The Catholics aren't interested in assurance, a part of their framework is so. But certain elite individuals don't know. Second caveat on that is, one must always assume that you are not one of those elite individuals. I think if God reveals to you, and then you'll see the practical pastoral uh, application of what's going on. Those who are not predestined will despair. They'll despair. Of course, you do have certain occurrences um, like this occurring, uh, happening. But also, and perhaps more importantly, it begets negligence in the predestined. It undermines the authority of the church. If you go to Aquinas and you say to him as a believer, um, how can I know that I'm one of the elect? He would say to you, well, unless you're a super saint, you can't. It won't be revealed to you. But what you should do is make sure that you are a good working member, if you like. Go to confession. Do take the sacraments. When you're dying, call for last rites. If you do all of these things, you can have a reasonable hope of salvation. Pass through early gates. So there... Predestination then is applicable. We'll just read the Aquinas' own big answer here. It is fitting that God should predestine men, but all things are subject to his providence, as was shown before. He's building on arguments from previous chapters. Now, it belongs to providence to direct things towards their end, as was also said. The end towards which created things are directed by God is twofold, one which exceeds all proportion and faculty of created nature, and this end is life eternal, and that consists in seeing God which is above the nature of every creature, as shown below. That is another point of continuity, incidentally, between the Middle Ages and the Reformation and the Puritans. They think about heaven in a similar way. Heaven is seeing God, gazing with pure intellectual vision 
upon God. The other end, however, is proportionate to created nature, to which end created being can attain according to the power of its nature. If a thing cannot attain to something by the power of its nature, it must be directed thereto by another. Thus an arrow is directed by the archer towards a mark. Hence, properly speaking, a rational creature capable of eternal life is led towards it, directed, as it were, by God. The reason of that direction pre-exists in God, as in him is the type of the order of all things towards an end. I, God has a plan, like an architect. When a house is built, the house is the last thing to be built. The first thing, though, that happens is that the architect has a vision of what the house will look like when it is built. Predestination for Aquinas in God is like an architect planning a house. First of all, he has in his mind what the house should look like. Then he goes out and builds it. First of all, he has in his mind that X, Y, and Z will be with him in eternity, gazing on him with pure intellectual vision and joy for all time. Then he goes out and he makes sure that the created realm occurs, events are executed in a way that ensures that the plan, the type in his mind, is fulfilled in reality. The type in the mind of the doer of something to be done is a kind of pre-existence in him of the thing to be done. Hence the type of the aforesaid direction of a rational creature toward the end of life eternal is called predestination. Plan exists in the mind of the architect before the building. It is a pre-building, if you like. The destiny of the elect exists in the mind of God before it happens in history. Therefore, it is predestiny. For to destine is to direct or send. Thus, it is clear that predestination, as regards its object, is a part of providence. And there, of course, uh, the classic medieval, you'll often see that uh, cited as a criticism sometimes of them. I've never been able to work out quite what the problem is. It's a part of providence. First of all, Aquinas has his general providential theory, predestined the elect, and develops a particular dimension of the providential theory as applied to the particular elect. So any questions on that first, first article? Um, I think a number of points. First of all, <coughs> use of authorities arises from a high view of the church. doesn't make distinction in his own mind that many of us would want to make. So when he quotes an authoritative father, he is, if he's not citing the words of scripture, I think in his own mind he's citing something pretty close to the content. Secondly, many of you, we all know, many of the objections raised to things like predestination operate within a philosophical frame. Thirdly, I think that we mustn't divorce what Aquinas is doing here from his day-to-day -day work of exegesis. He's not developing predestination in a purely philosophical setting. In this particular class, if you like, OGI, he's addressing theology from a philosophical perspective. But we must bear in mind that what we have here is not all that Aquinas says about the subject, <coughs> any more than, you know, one of the criticisms that's often made of Van Til is that you read Van Til and see much biblically. Well, in part, that's resolvable by the question of genre, philosophical discussion, past of what's going on as well. Whether Aquinas is scriptural or not, and say, well, does his philosophy, does his teaching, his... as I said last week, don't, um, often the, the, you've got to be aware both of what somebody read and the way that, of what somebody wrote and the way that they've been received. I mean, questions that came up in a discussion I was involved in yesterday, it didn't develop along these lines, but the question of the loci method of doing dogmatics can often look, you know, the loci method of doing can often look like a abstract way of doing of course, it arises precisely in the context of the other questions. 
Let's move on to the second question then. <clears throat> the question here is a very similar to um, questions about merit will come up later on. Uh, it seems that predestination places something, Aquinas says, in the predestined. For every action of itself causes passion. If therefore predestination is action in God, predestination must be passion in the predestined. Um, Origen says on the text, he was predestined, predestination is of one who is not, destination of one who is. And Augustine says, what is predestination but the destination of one who is? Therefore predestination is only of one who actually exists, and thus it places something in the predestined. Objection three, preparation is something in the thing prepared, but predestination is in the preparation of God's benefits, as Augustine says. Therefore predestination is something predestined. Further, nothing temporal enters into the definition of eternity. But grace, which is something temporal, is found in the definition of predestination. You'll notice there uh, the notion of grace as being something temporal, ties in with Aquinas' sacramental thinking. For predestination is the preparation of grace in the present and of glory in the future. Therefore, predestination <coughs> is not anything eternal. So it must needs be that it is in the predestined and not in God, for whatever is in him is eternal. On the contrary, the said contra, Augustine says that predestination is the foreknowledge of God's benefits, but foreknowledge is not in the things foreknown, but in the person who foreknows them. Therefore, predestination is in the one who predestines and not in the predestined. And then the answer. Predestination is not anything in the predestined, but only in the person who predestined. We have said above that predestination is a part of providence. Now, providence is not anything in the things provided for, but is a type in the mind of the provider, as was proved above. But the execution of providence, which is called government, is in a passive way in the thing governed and in an active way in the governor. Whence it is clear that predestination is a kind of type of the ordering of some persons towards eternal salvation existing in the divine mind. The execution, however, of this order is in a passive way in the predestined, but actively in God. The execution of predestination is the calling and magnification according to the apostle. Aquinas is making point there that is so similar to the later reformed distinction between the decree and its execution that eternity and time have to be kept separate in some way and that one mustn't confuse predestination with the mix of history predestination stands outside of history we need to think about the decree and the execution of the decree that's a point you'll find in Calvin he's picked up an important basic distinction between God's and God's execution of that decree. So again, here we have Aquinas doing something that will be very, very useful for the later Protestant tradition. And it comes down to, it gives replies to the various objections there. Um, <coughs> uh, let's just look at the uh, reply to objection three. Preparation is twofold. Of the patient in respect of passion. Patient, Aquinas is using the strict sense of the word here. Patient, one who suffers. Uh, the patient in respect to passion. And suffering does not necessarily mean a bad thing for Aquinas. It simply means somebody who is acted on by something from outside. The one who is passive in any action. Preparation is twofold. Of the patient in respect to passion, and this is in the thing prepared. And of the agent to action, and this is in the agent. Such a preparation is predestination. As an agent by intellect is said to prepare itself to act accordingly as it preconceives the idea of what is to be done. Thus God from all eternity prepared by predestination conceiving the idea of the order of some towards salvation. And there we get the first hint, of course, of the particularity of election as well. Predestination. Predestination is of a part, not of the whole. 
And then final <coughs> reply, grace does not come into the definition of predestination as something belonging to its essence, but inasmuch as predestination implies a relation to grace as of course to effect and of act to its object, whence it does not follow that predestination is anything temporal. Predestination is eternal. It implies grace. It implies merits. It implies all of these things. But things are not embodied in the act of predestination itself. They are the results of predestination. This points us forward to the question about we ask in a few minutes' time. Is predestination on the basis of foreseen merits? Of course not. It can't be. Because merits are the effect of cause of it. It is an eternal thing. The reason for which lies in God himself. For Aquinas, the external world does not impact upon God and make him do things. God is sovereign. He stands outside of time. He does what he wants. And therefore, merit, grace, all of these things are the result of predestination. Not part of predestination, not the cause of predestination. Pretty clear on that point. And again, I want to draw your attention to the similarities between what Aquinas is saying here and what the later reform will say about predestination. This man is a card-carrying anti-Pelagian. Card-carrying anti-Pelagian. Self-consciously building upon Augustine. Self-consciously rejecting the idea of autonomy as the basis for God's deciding who. And then there's a little hint at the end there when he talks about predestination being of part, not of the whole. Third article, uh, whether God reprobates any man. Uh, it seems that God reprobates no man, for nobody reprobates what he loves, but God loves every man. Thou lovest all things that are, and thou hatest none of the things thou hast made. Further, if God reprobates any man, it would be necessary for reprobation of the same relation, relation to the reprobate as predestination has to the predestined. But predestination is the cause of salvation of the predestined. Therefore, reprobation will likewise be the cause of the loss of the reprobate. But this is false. You see there, it means making the classic point about parallelism. If election is the cause of salvation, reprobation must be the cause of damnation. And that creates problems for the doctrine of God. Or it creates problems, if you like, for your understanding of God's justice. Uh, further, election, um, further, no one ought to, or to no one ought anything to be imputed which he cannot avoid. But if God reprobates anyone, that one must perish. But it is said, consider the works of God, that no man correct whom he hath despised. Therefore, it could not be imputed to any man were he to <coughs> perish. But this is false. Therefore, God does not reprobate anyone. On the contrary, it is said, Malachi 1, 2, 3, I have loved Jacob, but have hated Esau. I answer that, God does reprobate some, for it was said that predestination is a part of providence. To providence, however, it belongs to permit certain defects in those things which are subject to providence, as was said above. Thus, as men are ordained to eternal life through the providence of God, it is likewise part of that providence to permit some to fall away from the end. This is called reprobation. Thus, as predestination is a part of providence in regard to those ordained to eternal salvation, so reprobation is a part of providence in regard to those who turn not turn aside from that end. Hence, reprobation implies not only foreknowledge, but also something more, as does providence. Therefore, as predestination includes the will to confer grace and glory, so also reprobation includes the will to permit a person to fall into sin and to impose the punishment of damnation on account of that sin. You will notice there the careful language of permission that Aquinas uses. <coughs> predestination is, if you like, is not the permission to allow some to achieve eternal life. It is the basis upon which some will achieve eternal life. But reprobation is the permission to allow some to continue on paths that do not lead to eternal life. 
very, very careful use of language. Oh. Reply to objection one, God loves all men and all creatures in as much as he wishes them all some good, but he does not wish every good to them all. Of course, some in the Dutch tradition, particularly on the very right wing of the Dutch tradition, would re reject that. Remember the saying about Skilder saying, when Sir Homan Grace, they talk about want to live their lives and enjoy things, and they quickly respond and say, but there are some, I think, on the right of the Dutch tradition who would certainly repudiate Thomas at that point. Though it seems to me that Thomas is saying nothing more than what the Bible itself generally says with regard to the non-elect. Reprobation differs in its causality uh, in, from predestination. The latter is the cause both of what is expected in the future life by the predestined and of what is received in this life, namely grace. If you're predestined, that causes your eternal life, ultimately, but the, the causes that take place in history are also part of that predestination as well. God will predestine you to receive grace. Reprobation, however, is not the cause of what is in the present, namely sin. It is the cause of abandonment by God. It is, if you like, God passing over and not calling you in to the sacramental, gracious community of the church. And then reply to objection three. And here you start to move into the area of where you get in the Middle Ages of discussion of different kinds of freedom and necessity. You have it in kind of embryonic form here. Reprobation by God does not take anything away from the power of the person reprobated. They're still free. Hence, when it is said that the reprobated cannot obtain grace, this must be understood, uh, not be understood as implying absolute impossibility, but only conditional impossibility, as was said above, that the predestined must necessarily be saved, yet by conditional necessity, which does not do away with the liberty of choice. Whence, although anyone reprobated by God cannot acquire grace, nevertheless that he falls into this or that particular sin comes from the use of his free will. Hence, it is rightly imputed to him as guilt. You are still free as a reprobate. Go off and commit adultery, or you cannot bother going to church. You can choose your sin. Which you can't do. It's very, it's very similar to Augustine's idea. Non-elect or those outside of grace have free will, but it's captive to sin. You can still choose to do A or B. You can choose to do this <coughs> sinful thing or that sinful thing. But you cannot choose to pursue God without let or hindrance. In the Augustine tradition, of course, the ability to pursue God is the ultimate freedom. Freedom is not the choice of A or B. Freedom to pursue God without let or hindrance. So I'll just bring that up to show you that Aquinas is, one would, one would probably want to say, a single predestinarian. But election, he decrees to elect some and he permits others to fall into sin, he passes them over. So he's not uh, a double predestinarian in the way that others in the Middle Ages would be. Thomas Bradwardine, for example, Gregory of Rimini, I'll give you their names. These men are more double predestinarian. Aquinas, more of a single predestinarian. Then we come on to whether the predestined are chosen by God. Um, <coughs> just pull out a particularly key phrase. Look at the answer. Predestination presupposes election in the order of reason, and election presupposes love. Notice you took the order of reason there. These are logical distinctions we make in God's mind. They're not chronological ones. God doesn't first love, then predestine. What he does is he does them all chronologically, simultaneously. But in terms of us thinking about God, we have to divide him up. We have to make him complex, where in fact he's simple. God is simple. He's, he does everything simultaneously, if you like. We think about God, however, we have to make certain God. In doing so, we obscure something of God, but we also highlight something, make something more understandable. So he talks here about the order of reason. 
The reason of this is that predestination, as stated above, is part of providence. Providence is also prudence, is the plan existing in the intellect directing the ordering of some things towards an end. But nothing is directed towards an end unless the will for that end already exists. Whence the predestination of some to eternal life presupposing the order of reason that God wills their salvation. And to this belong both election and love. Love inasmuch as he wills them this particular good of eternal salvation. Since to love is to wish well to anyone, election inasmuch as he wills this good for some in preference to others since he reprobates some as stated above. Election and love, however, are differently ordered in God and in ourselves. Because in us, the will in loving does not cause good, but we are incited to love by the good which already exists. And therefore we choose someone to love, and so election in us precedes love. In God, however, it is the reverse. For his will, by which in loving he wishes good to somebody, is the cause of that good possessed by some in preference to others. Thus it is clear that love precedes election in the order of reason. An election precedes predestination, whence all the predestinates are objects uh, of election and love. And he's pointing there very clearly towards, uh, again, building his case for when he talks about merits. Are they a cause of election or not? Why do you love your husband or your wife, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, whatever? You do so because you see something in them that's attractive to you. It in them causes your love and brings it, brings it out in you. Aquinas is saying very clearly that that is not the way God loves. God's love is not responsive love, it is created love. God makes the unlovely lovely. Again, one has to say, this is just, what we say in Britain, bog-standard Augustinian. And it marks between Aquinas and Augustine and Aquinas and the later reformers. That election, creative, in that it makes lovely. It doesn't pick on the lovely love them as a response. And then we come, of course, in the fifth article, whether the foreknowledge of merits is the cause of predestination. And here is the age-old question of, what is it that makes God predestine Charlie and not predestine James? Is it that he looks through his hypothetical knowledge of all time, way back in eternity, and he sees that Charlie does more good things... What was the chapter's name I mentioned? James. He sees that Charlie does more good works than James does. It wouldn't have mattered. It could be Peter or Francis or Julie or whatever. But he sees that um, Charlie does more good works than James, and so he decides one side. In that case, predestination has been based upon the intrinsic qualities of the object that is predestined. Now, Aquinas asked this is his fifth question. Are merits the basis of predestination? But if you've been following his arguments so far, you know that can't be the case already. He's already, on a number of occasions, clearly presupposed a theology where love is creative, not responsive. So let's see what he has to say. Objection one. It seems that foreknowledge of merits is the cause of predestination. Quotes Romans 8, then quotes a glass of Ambrose. Um, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy says, I will give mercy to him whom I foresee will turn to me with his whole heart. Objection two, divine predestination includes the divine will, which by no means can be irrational, since predestination is the purpose to have mercy, but there can be no other reason for predestination than the knowledge of merits. Therefore, it must be the cause or reason of predestination. Good example there of Aquinas putting an argument in somebody's mouth that depends upon a close similarity between the way God thinks and the way we think. Aquinas is accused of 
uh, reducing God to human dimensions. Not quite the case. Here we have an example of setting up an argument that you know, God's just like us. He doesn't behave irrationally. We only love things that are lovely. Therefore, God only loves things that are lovely. Because God, at the end of the day, he's just like a bigger, better version of me. That's what he's saying. Third, there is no injustice in God. It would seem unjust that unequal things be given to equals, but all men are equal as regards both nature and original sin. An inequality in them arises from the merits or demerits of their actions. Therefore, God does not prepare unequal things for men by predestinating and reprobating, unless through the foreknowledge of their merits and demerits. On the contrary, says Titus 3.5, not by works of justice which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. But as he saved us, so he predestined that we should be saved. <coughs> Therefore, knowledge of merits is not the cause of reason or predestination. Oh, reason of predestination. Then he goes on to say that uh, uh, since predestination includes will as was said above, the reason of predestination must be sought for in the same way as was the reason of the will of God. It was shown above that we cannot assign any cause of the divine will on the part of the act willing, but a reason can be found on the part of the things willed, inasmuch as God wills one thing on account of something else. Wherefore, nobody has been so insane as to say that merits is the cause of divine predestination as regards the act of the predestinator. There you have the greatest Catholic theologian of the Middle Ages saying nobody is so... So, bear in mind, when you read Martin Luther on the Middle Ages, Luther is not talking about the spread of medieval theology. He's talking about the particular tradition in which he was schooled. Accordingly, he says, there were some who held that the effect of predestination was preordained for some on account of pre-existing merits in a former life. It's kind of Shirley MacLaine approach. You know, <laughs> I was Marie Antoinette in a previous life, I had my head chopped off, therefore I've come back and I'm a Hollywood superstar. <laughs> you know, I've said before, isn't it funny how these reincarnated people were never like boring in their previous life? They were always somebody spectacular. Um, this was the opinion. I remember a headline in a British newspaper taking the mickey out of this. Um, My cat is reincarnation of Hitler. Um, and it had a picture of a cat with a little Hitler moustache on it. <laughs> it was after one of Shirley MacLaine's outbursts. But, um, uh, this was the opinion of Origin. It was the same newspaper, actually, who bought you the picture of the Luftwaffe jet that had crashed on the moon. But uh, uh, this was the opinion of Origen, who thought that the souls of men were created in the beginning, and according to the diversity of their works, different states were assigned to them in this world when united to the body. The apostle, however, rebuts this. Others say that pre-existing merits in this life are the reason, of course, of the effect of predestination. For the Pelagians thought that the beginning of doing well came from us, and the consummation from God, so that it came about that the effect of predestination was granted to one and not to another, because the one made a beginning by preparing, whereas the other did not. That, of course, what he describes there as Pelagian theology, is to be normative, via moderna, modern way theology, at the end of the medieval period. These guys didn't read their Aquinas care. That theology is precisely the theology that Luther reacts against this. But against this, we have the saying of the Apostle that we are not sufficient to think anything of ourselves. No principle of action can be imagined previous to the act of thinking. Wherefore, it cannot be said that anything begun in us can be the reason of the effect of predestination. So others have said that merits follow the effect of predestination or the reason of predestination. This is the classic Arminian, or what will later become, the Jesuit stroke Arminian approach to predestination. God foresees and he looks forward to different possible worlds and he sees the possible worlds where Charlie does good things with grace and Charlie does bad things with grace. And he decides to create the world where Charlie does good things with grace. That is a development of precisely the kind of thinking that Aquinas is critiquing here. 
I suppose one of the other things I'm trying to bring out is the diversity of Catholic thought, if you like, and the deviation of much Catholic thought from its own roots. Um, these are on a distinction between that which flows from grace and that which flows from free will, as if the same thing cannot come from both, etc., etc. And then you just go down to the replies, the objections. The use of grace foreknown by God is not the cause of conferring grace, except after the manner of a final cause, as was explained above. Predestination has its foundation in the goodness of God as regards its effects in general. Considering its particular effects, however, one effect is the reason of another, as already stated. The reason for the predestination of some and reprobation of others must be sought for in the goodness of God. <coughs> Thus he is said to have made all things through his goodness, so that the divine goodness might be represented in things. Now, here we come to a very important uh, argument. Now, it is necessary that God's goodness, which in itself is one and undivided, should be manifested in many ways in his creation, because creatures in themselves cannot attain to the simplicity of God. We already mentioned that. God is simple. For us to understand him, we have to divide him up. We make formal distinctions in our doctrine of God that have no real existence in him. We talk about God's justice, God's goodness, God's mercy, God's wisdom, different attributes of God that actually subsist in God as part of his simplicity. He's just simple. That is not to say that God's goodness equals his justice, equals his wisdom. When we say that God is just and God is good, we're saying different things about God. But we mustn't imagine that we're saying that God's goodness is somehow separable from his mercy. They all, if you like, have the same reference that is God, even though we're saying slightly different things by doing them. And the example that Brian Davis, a modern Catholic philosopher, gives is this. Uh, when you talk about different attributes of God, it's like saying one squared, one cubed, one to the power of four, one to the power of five, one to the power of six, and so on. What's the answer to one squared? What's the answer to one cubed? What's the answer to one to the power of four? And so on and so forth. But, although they each have the same basic reference, if you like, the number one, we're actually saying slightly different. Saying one squared is, in a sense, not saying the same thing. So it's an analogy that Brian Davis uses to try to show how we can use different words to describe different things and the same thing at the same time. So anyway, God's simplicity uh, touched on here. Uh, Thus it is that for the completion of the universe there are required different grades of being, some of which hold a high and some a low place in the universe. Here Aquinas is operating with <coughs> a philosophical framework which we would now not regard as being particularly adequate. There are needs, if you like, of grade. For the universe to be perfect, you need to have different grades of perfection within it. That this multiformity of grades may be preserved in things. God allows some evils, lest many good things should never happen, as was said above. Um, why does God allow... Uh, I, how many of you are Doctor Who fans? you know who Doctor Who is? Guy who kind of travels through time. I grew up on Doctor Who. My kids are watching the same Doctor Who as I watched when I was there. Because <coughs> it's permanently run on PBS here. Well, Doctor Who's this time traveller. He travels all through the universe and he fights um, monsters of different kinds. And his deadliest enemies are the Daleks. They look a bit like this. Um, they're, they're the kind of most evil creature in the universe. Um, they have the, the one, you may laugh, but I was terrified by these things. Um, 
They go around the universe screaming, exterminating, exterminating, blasting people with ray guns. They were the most sophisticated and advanced creatures in the universe. They had a slight problem, they couldn't go upstairs. Unfortunately, all the, all the planets they invaded didn't have stairs, so that wasn't a particular problem. Um, uh, well, there's one of these episodes in Doctor Who. He travels back in time to the point at which the Daleks are being created. And he stand, this does have a serious point. He's standing outside the laboratory where the evil scientist Davros is putting the Daleks together. And he's wired it all up to blow up. And he comes to touch the two wires. And as he's about to do it, he suddenly thinks, if I do this, all of those federations that will be formed, <coughs> therefore he has to wrestle with the problem of which is the greater evil, the Daleks or the non-existent? I know it's a kids' program, but I saw that when I was eight, and it really struck me as a very interesting <coughs> dilemma. It stayed with me ever since. I saw it on the telly here just a few weeks. But Aquinas is making a similar point here to the so-called Dalek dilemma, as I call it, that God allows imperfections and evils in the universe so that greater good may result. He allows certain evil acts to take place because if those acts didn't take place, if the Daleks didn't exist, then the planets Venus and Mars wouldn't come into a kind of intergalactic alliance at some point. They might end up fighting and destroying each other. A greater evil would result. So Aquinas is talking about the universe and saying that it is necessary that God allows certain evils to exist so that greater good may rebound and ultimately greater glory may rebound to God himself. Um, God wills, you see here he says, to manifest his goodness in men in respect to those whom he predestines by means of his mercy in sparing them and in respect of others whom he reprobates by means of his justice in punishing them. We have mercy and justice. If God just elected everybody, if you just had universalism, the manifestation of God's justice. I'm not commending that to you as an argument, but there's one of the reasons why for Aquinas reprobation is necessary, given the fact of sin. Reprobation is necessary, because it is necessary that God his justice. And how does he do that, other than in allowing a certain portion of the human race? There is that element. God is simple, therefore he needs to reveal himself to us in a manifest variety of ways, so that we can grasp all these different facets of his character. And one of the ways he does that is through reprobation. He reveals his justice. I do commend Dr. Hootie, by the way. It's good fun. Um, it starts Pyramids of Mars tomorrow, half 11, W-Y-B-E, I think. I'm away, but my kids are going to video it for me. There's an interesting point in that, actually, about a riddle that comes up in episode four that I couldn't work out when I was eight. I'm on a video and see if I can work it out. Uh, but, um, uh, so, this is the one where the pyramids turn out to be uh, spaceships that landed from Mars way, way back in time. So... Um, it's, you know, I do have a social life, but you know, <laughs> to watch these things. So <clears throat> there you have then. Uh, there you have a rationale for uh, predestination. Any questions on that? Uh, yes. Two questions. <coughs> yeah, I'll take the first. I mean, you're thinking about this mercy justice in your first point. What, what do I see as the problem yeah. with it? Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose I would see the problem of it is that. Um, I say exegetically, I would find it difficult to see where this necessarily comes from, I think. Uh, I'm not convinced that this is entirely consistent with biblical teaching on why some are reprobated. It seems to be quite speculative, if you like, at this particular point. That would be my own personal problem with it. In terms of um, sanctification, Aquinas operates with a distinction that is 
I think is embryonic in Augustine, though I don't think he uses the terminology. Aquinas talks about operating grace and cooperating grace. That um, there is operative grace which comes down and God unilaterally acts upon you. But there is also cooperative <coughs> grace whereby God gives you a helping hand and you work with him. And Aquinas' view of sanctification, I think, would be it is part all of God and it is part your cooperation with God. The decisive thing that brings you into the community of grace is all of God. But the level of sanctification or of holiness that you attain within that community is partly your responsibility. You do with the means of grace, what you do with the sacraments of the church. Would certainly, would certainly, that kind of argument would certainly be entirely consistent with what's being said here. That you need all degrees of perfection within the created realm in order to demonstrate perfection in its most perfect. So that would be entirely consistent with what's being said here, I think. Right, I'll take these two and then I'm going to move on. Brad? Um, I don't know. I don't know about that. The cross <coughs> would be a powerful criticism. I don't think the devil and the angels would bother him particularly because they're not in the created realm. Um, it's not. The devil and the angels are reserved for a separate category of discussion. The cross, Christ, the sacramental system of the church, these things don't apply to the angels, so we can deal with them as a separate category. But I don't know about the cross idea. I'm not sure about that one. I haven't come across anything, but that's not to say there isn't something out there. But none of these... If you did that, of course, you might then be pointing immediately in a universalist direction, which would be extremely unacceptable. So you'd have to be careful how you frame the criticism because you couldn't be... One could counter. I mean, bar, one could say, is a kind of, in his own eccentric sort of way, is a kind of argument about election and reprobation that resolves the problem of God's justice purely. One could say that. I, don't, I mean, this is one of the weaker points, I think, in Aquinas' own argument. I don't buy it for the reasons I mentioned earlier. The rational mind, its faculties, in order to have a solid understanding of the noetic. Yeah, I've heard that too. I don't find any evidence for it in Aquinas. I think, um, I mean, I think I've said before in this class, a lot of the, the Protestant reaction to Thomas, I think, is a reaction to Thomism. Thomism changes in the 16th century. And there, I think, you get more emphasis upon the autonomy of, of humanity, if you like, over against God. I think that Thomas has a profound understanding of the impact of human sin upon the rational faculties. I think he's much more Augustinian than many Protestants make him out to be. Um, Francis Schaeffer, I think, is one of, the great, one of the guys who's most responsible for what I see as a misrepresentation of, of Thomas. Um, sure, he's using logical reasoning, but then all theologians do that. The question is, where are his premises coming from? And I think... I think Aquinas would make a good case here in saying my premises really come from revelation. That for Aquinas, that isn't necessarily just scripture, of course. He's talking about the church. The church is also a channel of revelation for him, though closely linked to scripture. But I think the idea of him as... I don't buy the idea of him as a rationalist. If you read him on sin and what sin does to the human faculties, he says when, when sin goes... When, when, when you sin and you lose that primeval grace that you have in the garden, the human faculties, the psychology, yes, if you like, it all remains intact, but all the faculties are higgledy-piggledy. Your emotions govern your mind, control your will. You're completely screwed up, if you like, <laughs> after, after the fall. He's quite clear on that. that is I think that position is attenuated in later Thomism. 
and I suspect this is where Van Til, Schaefer and company have problems. Really speaking, it's often not problems with Thomas, it's problems with later Thomism. Some problems of which one can say, well, they're incipient in Thomas, one can maybe read them back. Well, maybe, but we should ultimately judge Thomas on Thomas's own grounds, not on what's done with him after he dies. Um, any more than we should judge any thinker really on what is done with their thinking after they after they've done, and even the things that he says, you know, you can you can reason to truths of Christianity. I mean, take the proofs for God's existence. He says, well, you can use the proofs, but you've got to bear two things in mind. One, you've got to be utterly brilliant to use these proofs and to understand what they're on about, which knocks 99.999% <coughs> of the human race out straight away. And secondly, more significantly, those who use these proofs to prove God's existence can never know that they've reached the truth because they have no criteria by which to judge their conclusions, to know if they're the truth. So, yeah, you can reason to the truth from these proofs, but you can never know you've arrived at the truth because you have no revelational criteria to judge them by. And that seems to me to be something different to what is being said by later Thomism and something different to what is being imputed to Thomas by many of his Protestant critics. So, I am... I know that there are people in the seminary, students who make dark mutterings about Truman and his Thomism. <laughs> I heard somebody say, you know, but Van Til read Thomas in Latin, to which my response would be, well, never thought of that, you know. We're actually reading Thomas in Latin. That's an original idea. I think Truman's Thomism, I don't think I'm a Thomist at all, but I would say that I am sympathetic to certain things that Thomas says that later Thomism doesn't say. And don't conflate what I'm teaching today with what Thomas to say in the 16th, 17th century. I think that Thomas is much more Augustinian, his epistemology and everything, than the later Catholic tradition is. Anyway, <clears throat> the first books I took into my new office were actually Thomas's Summa Theologiae, which was part by accident and part just, um, well, I bumped <coughs> into Dr. Oliphant on the way into my office and he kind of raised his eyebrows as he went past. <laughs> but, but then, interestingly enough, he asked me where I'd bought them. He was obviously interested in getting a set himself. <laughs> so, uh, seventh question, whether the number of the predestined is certain. This goes back to the old Augustinian question about, you know, if you've got predestination, does that mean that the number is fixed? Of course, it really has to. Um, but you get some nice little touches here. I mean, objection two is the classic um, objection from sort of classical philosophy, the principle of sufficient reason. Why does the earth stand still for these guys? Well, it has no more reason to move up than it does to move down or move in any other direction. So the number of the elect is fixed. Well, why does God fix it at one number rather than another? He has no more reason to predestine 12 than he does to predestine 800 million. To us, it seems a weak argument. In the context of the times, it's somewhat stronger. Um, so on. And then you get the, you know, the direct reference to Augustine there and the said contra. The number of the predestined is certain and can neither be increased nor diminished. Um, and then he says, I answer that the number of the predestined is certain. Read that section for yourself. I'm more interested in, as we've, we've only got a sort of five, ten minutes left, in zipping on to predestination and prayer. Because I did want to, as I say, bring home to you the fact that ho-hum, how many angels dance on the head of a, head of a pin, might seem like a speculative question. You know, I'll argue the toss on that one. But at the end of the day, here you have a systematic section culminating in, um, if you like, the equivalent of the points for further reflection. 
that you get in Bible study material that you often buy. Um, whether predestination can be furthered by the prayers of the saints. This is a man doing theology within the context of a university, but also within the context of a religious order, within the context of the church. He is never that far away from the everyday problems of his ministry and his people. It is a model, I think, of theological education which we have tragically lost. But here you have it, uh, the terminal point uh, of this particular article is, if you like, what does this mean for the way that the Christian lives their life, particularly with regard to prayer? Objection one, it seems that predestination cannot be furthered by prayers of the saints, for nothing eternal can be preceded by anything temporal, and in consequence nothing temporal can help towards making something else eternal. Predestination is eternal, therefore since the prayers of the saints are temporal, they cannot so help us to cause anyone to become predestined. Predestination therefore is not furthered by the prayers of the saints. God is God and he's creator. We don't act on God and make him do things. He has decided what's to be done in and of himself. So why pray? Why bother praying? If I pray that X will become a Christian, what's the point? Number of the elect is fixed. Aquinas has told us all this stuff in the last few chapters about there's no merit or anything involved in this predestination. Why do I bother praying? Secondly, there is no further, as there is no need of advice except on account of defective knowledge, so there is no need of help except through defective power. But neither of these things can be said of God when he predestines. When it is said, who hath helped the spirit of the Lord, or who hath been his counsellor? Therefore, predestination cannot be furthered by prayers of the saints. Hey, you know the argument. If God's predestined X to be saved, X will be saved. I mean, my prayers. So the first objection is, what's the point in prayer? It makes no difference anyway. The second one is saying, God is all sufficient in and of himself. I don't have to pray. Heard these kind of arguments before? Here we are, 13th century, being dealt with. Further, if a thing can be helped, it can also be hindered. But predestination cannot be hindered by anything. Therefore, it cannot be furthered by anything. Nice logical point. If X is going to be saved anyway, and we can't stop X being saved, then what reason do we have to suppose we can help X to be saved either? On the contrary, it is said that Isaac besought the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and he heard him and made Rebekah to conceive. But from that conception, Jacob was born and he was predestined. Now his predestination would not have happened if he had never been born. Therefore, predestination could be furthered by the prayers of the saints. There you are. I was going to say, does God change his mind? Just, you know, that question is still thrown about today. Does that prayer convince God to change his mind? I answer that. Concerning this question, there were different errors. Some regarding the certainty of divine predestination said that the prayers were superfluous. as also anything else done to attain salvation. Because whether these things were done or not, the predestined would attain, and the reprobate would not attain eternal salvation. But against this opinion are all the warnings of Holy Scripture, exhorting us to prayer and other good works. Aquinas is saying, if you take that position, then you've got a real problem with the existential urgency of much of what's said in the, in the Scriptures. Why are we told to pray? Why are we told to take the gospel to the four corners of the world? All of these existential demands simply don't seem to make sense. Others declare that the divine predestination was altered through prayer. This is stated to have been the opinion of the Egyptians, who thought the divine ordination, which they called fate, could be frustrated by certain sacrifices and prayers. Of course, he's got that wrong. We know from Doctor Who, the Egyptians are actually from Venus. (laughs) Sorry, Mars. So it doesn't work. But against this also is the authority of Scripture, for it is said that the triumph in Israel will not spare and will not be moved to repentance, and the gifts of the calling of God are without repentance. So Aquinas quite clearly sees there are two polar opposites here. Predestination, it's all in eternity. Nothing we can do in time matters. On the other hand, 
surface reading of certain biblical texts implies that God's changing his mind. We can pray and make God change his mind. Where do we fall between the two? Wherefore, we must say otherwise that in predestination, two things are to be considered, namely the divine preordination, secondly, its effect. As regards the former, in no possible way can predestination be furthered by the prayers of the saints, for it is not due to their prayers that anyone is predestined by God. Got the point? You can pray for X to join the church, to become a Christian. But there is a sense in which your prayer will make no difference, because X is predestination lies in the sovereign will of God. So Aquinas is, if you like, accepting the futility of prayer on one level. As regards the latter, predestination is to be helped by the prayers of the saints and by other good works, because providence, of which predestination is a part, does not do away with secondary causes. Introducing a new category here. Primary causes equals God predestination. Secondary causes equals the means by which God accomplishes his predestination. Primary equals God, secondary means. So as natural effects are provided by God in such a way that natural causes are directed to bring about those natural effects without which those effects would not happen. So the salvation of a person is predestined by God in such a way that whatever helps that person towards salvation <coughs> falls under the order of predestination. If I want to go to Pittsburgh and I have a high view of God's providence, and I say, well, God has predestined that I will be in Pittsburgh this weekend. So I'm just going to go back home and put up my feet, a cup of coffee and watch Doctor Who on Saturday night or whatever. If I do that, I'm bound to get Pittsburgh anyway because God's predestined. Aquinas is saying what you're doing is, yes, God has eternally predestined that you'll be in Pittsburgh this weekend. Or you're flying to London tomorrow night or whatever. But that doesn't mean that the nuts and bolts of getting to Pittsburgh aren't important. God not only has predestined for you to be in Pittsburgh or in London, he has also appointed the means whereby that will happen. May well have been, as is the case at some points in the, in the scriptures, that prophets are whisked away and put down somewhere else which they couldn't have got to physically. But generally speaking, <coughs> one's journeys, in my experience, take place in normal time using normal means of transportation. I have to get into my car, I have to turn the ignition to go to the airport, I have to go through a checkout, I have to get on the plane. All of these things are necessary, even though the end result lies within the sovereignty of God. And Aquinas then goes on to say, prayer falls into that second category of activity. Yes, God may have ordained that E, F or G will become a Christian, will join the Catholic Church, will be baptised, will participate in the sacramental system. He might also have ordained that one of the means where it comes about is as an answer to a prayer that you make. And Aquinas, I think, gives about as nice an anti-Pelagian answer to the question as you'll find. <coughs> Basically, if you're going to justify prayer with an anti-Pelagian uh, setup, you're going to come down to some kind of answer that looks very much like Aquinas's, I think. And then replies to the objections. This argument shows that predestination is not furthered by prayers of the saints as regards the preordination. Your prayers don't interfere with the original decree. One is said to be helped by another in two ways. One, as much as he receives power from him, and to be helped thus belongs to the weak. But this cannot be said of God, and thus are we to understand who hath helped the Spirit of the Lord. We're not helping God out here. In another way, one is said to be helped by a person through whom he carries out his work, as a master through a servant. In this way, God is helped by us, inasmuch as we execute his orders, according to 1 Corinthians 3. Nor is this on account of any defect in the power of God, but because he employs intermediary causes in order that the beauty of order may be preserved in the universe 
and also that he may communicate to creatures the dignity of causality. Reply to objection three. Secondary causes cannot escape the order of the universal cause, as been said above. Indeed, they execute that order, and therefore predestination can be furthered by creatures, but it cannot be impeded. I'll end just there. I hope I've given you a taste of Aquinas, that there is much in Aquinas that points forward to later Reformation thinking on these issues. He is one of the carriers of the Augustinian torch in the Middle Ages. Marwell would want to have great reservations about his understanding of the sacraments and his understanding of the church. It was important that anti-Pelagianism was kept alive and well, because it's through guys like Aquinas that he has ultimately communicated Luther and Calvin.